that they would embrace it themselves. The challenge that we all have is to embrace our faith, our faith in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. <clears throat> um, are we sure? Good morning? Good morning. Okay, <laughs> just checking. So. Well, I'm Robbie Ederberg. I'm one of the pastors, and it's great to be able to share with you the word this morning as we continue our sermon series that we're calling Renewed, Life After Disaster. And the reality is that this is a journey through the book of Ezra, and it's a journey with the people of God in a season of their history where they are emerging from 70-plus years of disaster, and they're moving toward a life renewed as God intends it. And I mean, it's pretty easy to see the parallels to our life. It hasn't been 70 years, thank God, but we have been in this pandemic, this disaster for 14 months now, and we are starting to look at life after disaster. We're starting to think about what it could be like, what is it gonna look like, and we're starting to wonder what's life renewed gonna really be like. And whether it's this pandemic or it's another disaster that has come into your life at any time, when you start to move out of it, you start to move to life renewed, there's things that are always changing. Because really, that's what renewal is about. We talked about this a lot last week, that renewal involves change. It doesn't involve just going back to the way things were. It, by definition, involves something new, some sort of change, and it's usually a series of changes to get to that place where the the renewal has happened. And just this last week, we experienced significant change once again as we received new recommendations from the CDC, particularly for those who have been fully vaccinated. They've changed their recommendations around masking and social distancing so that, such that those who are fully vaccinated, they're now saying masks and social distancing aren't necessary. And it's a huge change. And they're saying that indoors or outdoors. And of course, in New Jersey, we're still living. Uh, it hasn't quite been applied yet because we're living under the executive orders of our governor who's made adjustments for outdoor gatherings, but not yet for indoor gatherings. But see, what the CDC guidance and recommendations doesn't address is how do we have life together, really together? How do we move forward, particularly as we're thinking about how do we move forward together as a church? Because this guidance really only covers one segment of the population, those who have been vaccinated. It doesn't cover those who have already had COVID and who are still in the window of time where they can't be vaccinated. What about them? It doesn't help address the question of those who can't be or shouldn't be vaccinated for a variety of reasons. Should they be forced simply to have to isolate themselves forever? It doesn't address what do we do with children, particularly children under the age of 12. There's lots of questions still remaining about how do we move together into life renewed. And particularly our session, the elders of our church are going to be gathering in the days to come to wrestle with those questions, to consider the new updates and new guidance and what it means for us to move forward as the body of Christ, where every member counts. Because it's not like we can just kind of lop off our arm and be like, yeah, well, okay, no big deal. right? We want to move forward together because every part matters. But how do we do that well? And how do we move into life renewed? 
Yeah, and whenever we're moving toward renewal, there's, there's lots of challenges to get there and lots of issues that we face along the way. And today we're going to look at a particular kind of challenge that the people of God faced and that we face. But as we move toward the scripture, I want to ask if you were one of those people this week who, well, just look at the picture. Were you one of these people? You're one of these people that was filling plastic bags with gasoline or Rubbermaid tubs with gasoline and then tossing them in your trunk. I mean, certainly it was happening. This was really happening in our country. One woman in South Carolina decided it was such a good idea to store up all this gas in her car, not in the tank, but actually in whatever containers she had. And eventually in the evening, she was being pulled over a normal routine traffic stop. And she decided, whoa, I don't want to get in trouble. So she decided to run. And by run, I mean drive faster and try to get away from the officer. And in the process of that, she flipped her vehicle and it was like a movie scene. It immediately burst into flames in this explosion. A woman pops out of her car, she is on fire, and the deputy that was in pursuit was able to put her out in time. It's crazy. What could have possibly caused this to happen? Sabotage. If you don't know the backstory, then you aren't aware that there was an electronic crime ring that this, the, uh, this past week actually hacked into the Colonial Pipeline and stole corporate data and eventually locked out the company from its own system, holding it ransom, hoping to get paid. And in the process, it shut down a pipeline that carries 45% of the gas in our country to the northeast part of our country. So there was a shortage. People were hoarding. For them, they just wanted to get paid. For the rest of us, it was sabotage to our way of life. And I want you to think about that. Because the reality is sabotage is always present when we move toward renewal. And we're going to see it in the people of God as we jump into Ezra chapter 4. And as we jump through this, because we're going to skip around just a little bit because it's a long passage if we take all of it. But as we read through it and as you follow along listening for God's word, I want you to also look for the sabotage. So let's jump in. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build. Because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in the building a a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Rahim, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants in trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king, so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, 
a place with a long history of sedition. This is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. The king sent this reply. To Rahim, the commanding officer, Shimshay, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in trans-Euphrates, greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahim and Shimshay, the secretary, and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And let's pray as we move into this word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that has been set apart in our week, this time where we intentionally seek to come near to you, to hear from you, to know you more deeply. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to be the one speaking in this time. Speak to our hearts, our souls. Allow us to respond so that we can see our lives renewed. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we talked about how these people had been brought back or sent back to Jerusalem out of captivity with the explicit command to rebuild the temple of God. And so last week, they had finished laying the foundation for that temple, and it was cause for an enormous celebration. And then we see at the beginning of what we read today that they've kept this work going to actually now build the structure of the temple. And while they're building, some of the the people who live locally, the neighbors, come and they offer to help. And they appeal to them saying, you know, let us help you. Because just like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time we were sent here. And, And what we have in this is we have these people who, yes, they live locally now, but they didn't always. Years and years and years before, when the Assyrian Empire invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, that the Assyrians took some of those Israelites captive back to Assyria, and they also transplanted all of these foreign people into the northern kingdom of Israel. And their thinking was, if we can get them to intermingle, intermarry, then through the process, they could breed out the Jewish faith, and they could just assimilate everybody into the Assyrian Empire. And to a degree, that's exactly what happened. At one point, they, they did the, have a priest from the Jewish people try to teach these foreigners what it meant to actually worship their God, to worship him alone and, and how to honor him. And, but we're told in 2, in 2 Kings 17, where this whole story is recounted, that at the end of the day, it didn't really work. That we're told they, they worshiped the Lord, yes, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been, had been brought. In other words, their hearts were divided. Yes, they had some loyalty and worship of God, but they also were holding on to the things that they knew, to these gods of their past, were continuing to honor and worship them. And so their devotion and their loyalty was split, and it was impure because it was not to God alone. And these neighbors are actually the ancestors of the Samaritans. And so if you're familiar with the time of Jesus, with with the Gospels, we see in those days there was huge, deep conflict between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. Well, these are the origins of this conflict. 
600 years before Jesus even shows up. It starts here. And so we have this conflict, this division. So the people that are working on the temple that have come back from exile, from captivity, they reject the offer for help. And they tell them, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. You have no, no part in building the temple of God because you are impure, because their hearts are divided, because they worship God, but they also worship the other gods. And so when we start thinking about what does this mean, how do, we, how do we actually translate this to our lives when we start thinking about renewal, one of the things that, that pops out and we have to grapple with is the reality that purity matters. As a matter of fact, it's a theme throughout the entire book of Ezra and even into the book of Nehemiah, which is the follow-up to, to the Ezra's story, that the purity of heart, purity of devotion, purity of thinking, purity of worship, purity of what we're going to live our lives for actually matters. The purity of how we live matters. And I know that for some, the idea of purity is kind of old-fashioned. It's quaint. It's unrealistic. It's even prude especially when we start thinking about renewal. Because what you really need with renewal is you don't need purity. You need freedom to pursue what's going to make you happy. Isn't that what renewal is all about? And for others, we start thinking about you know, purity matters, and it's like, yes, exactly. Because you know what we need? we need? The problem with our society is that there isn't enough purity. If we just had more purity, then we could have renewal. And really, neither of those approaches to purity is actually going to lead us to the renewal God wants. Because for those who reject the idea of purity, we don't appreciate that if we want the renewal that only God can bring, if we want renewal that is deep and lasting, if we want joy and peace that is beyond the circumstances of a moment where we feel happy, then our purity of our heart, our devotion matters. Our purity to God and devotion to God and God alone is at the center of renewal. And for those who have hope for our society that, yes, maybe we can just return to a time where purity was more important collectively and culturally, that if we can just have more of it, then, then we can get to a renewed future. I mean, part of the problem is we often, when we think that way, we miss the fact that God isn't as interested in the purity of our outward actions and behaviors as he is the heart behind it that would do the actions in the first place. Furthermore, it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope when we start looking at other people's lives that are impure, when we start looking at their actions that are inappropriate, because we, when we start identifying other people's impurity, we can very quickly slip into that place of, of judgmentalism, of self-righteousness, and our hearts become full with the impurity of self-righteousness, just as theirs might be with the impurity of their own freedoms. I mean, in all of this, we are being invited to a purity of heart that seeks God, God alone above all things and allowing him to bring true renewal. And, and what we have to grapple with is the reality that if our hearts are impure, then we have no place. We have no business even asking God for renewal. And so the people are, are there being rejected for their offer to help because of their impurity, and they don't like it a whole lot. None of us really likes being rejected. And so we're told in verse 4 that they actually set out to discourage the people from rebuilding the temple and actually to make them afraid. In other words, sabotage. They're trying to undermine the rebuilding of the temple. 
And so they're trying to intimidate them. Maybe it's through threats or mockery or whatever it is. Eventually, we see in verse 5, they actually even move to bribery, where they start bribing the Persian officials to, to try to set up obstacles. You know, it's like they've called in the building inspectors, and they're on the take, and the building inspectors come in, they show up, and they're like, nope, that's not going to work. Take it down. Pull that apart. Nope, you need a, need a permit. It's going to be a long waiting period. Whatever it is, all these obstacles is they're trying to rebuild the temple. And it happens, we're told, if you follow the timeline, for 16 years. 16 years that they are struggling, trying to move forward to get renewal, trying to move forward to rebuild this temple. And sabotage comes over and over. And it wasn't just the rebuilding of the temple. In this passage, we also moved from this scene to another scene where we see a series of letters to and from King Artaxerxes. Well, when you follow this, the timeline here, those letters were actually 40 years after the rebuilding of the temple was complete. And you might be like, what is going on? And we can't see it because we don't have the dates necessarily, but you've got to look at the kings that are all mentioned. And it's kind of like the, the editor that was putting together these stories from Ezra was like, man, then there was all this sabotage when we were trying to rebuild the temple, and it didn't end there wants us to realize that sabotage is not a one-time deal. It's something that can play out over years and years and an extended period of time as we seek renewal. And so 40 years later, when they're trying to rebuild the walls of the city and trying to rebuild the, the infrastructure of the city, this new group of people sends a letter to the king. And they're like, hey, king, this, this city, Jerusalem, is a rebellious and wicked city. Hey, you should check out the, the records of your predecessors because you're going to see the truth of, of what we're saying. And so the king checks it out. And he, he agrees. His assessment is, yes, this is a rebellious and wicked city. And so he puts a stop to the building of the temple. I mean, it's just interesting when you start thinking about it, a rebellious and wicked city, but from whose perspective? Those who lived in Jerusalem at the time? Probably not. They probably thought that they were doing the right thing, that they were upright, that they were dutiful, that they were pursuing the renewal that God intended for their lives. They didn't think it was wicked, rebellious. It was from the perspective of their enemies that their attempts for renewal were viewed as wicked and wrong. And I think this really starts to hit close to home when we start thinking about renewal in our own lives. Because, I don't know if you've had this experience, but often when you try to pursue a different way of being, when you try to pursue perhaps what God is calling you into, the person that he's calling you to be, and you start acting differently, you start living into the reality of your identity in Christ, and maybe you start setting some boundaries in your relationships, do you, have you ever found that those aren't always very popular? Have you ever found how quickly things can be turned upon you and suddenly you're being told that, that you're the one who's being unreasonable, you're out of line, you're being accused of the one who's attacking, you're being accused of being the one who just doesn't care? Right? And maybe all you did was set a boundary and say, you know what, I'm not going to be treated this way any longer. I'm not going to have the same argument that we've been having for years and years and I know exactly how it's going to go and it doesn't get us anywhere. I don't want to have that same future as our past. I'm going to do this differently. But they keep pushing against it. They keep trying to undercut it. They keep trying to sabotage. And it happens most often, I think, with the people closest to us. And that's really because the people closest to us, they really, they know how to push our buttons, don't they? I mean, and the reality is we all have buttons, every one of us. 
And those buttons have been formed and fashioned over years and years of experience in life and relationships. And, you know, we might try to step toward renewal. And it's kind of like if you can picture all of the bank of buttons on an elevator. And we're starting to, trying to step toward renewal. And we go, okay, man, I know if I get off on this floor, it's going to get ugly. And I know if I get off on this one, man, I, I don't want to go there anymore. I don't want to go to that level any longer. And so you start putting tape over your buttons, and you're like, do not touch. Do not touch. And you're starting to move toward renewal. But the problem is the buttons are still under the tape, and somebody else got in the elevator with you, and they're going, mm, 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 pushing the button over and over and over again because they're trying to get you back to where you were. See, from their perspective, you're changing. You're changing the rules. They had come to a place of being comfortable with life as it was, relationships functioning. Even if they didn't really function, it was dysfunctional. They were good with it. And you're now changing. And like we talked about last week, all change involves loss, and they're afraid of the loss, so they'll take what they know rather than this whole new thing. And so when you're trying to assert yourself and step into a renewed life, they're like, no, I don't want anything to do with that whole new thing you're doing. And they just want to bring you back in to the way things were. Man, it happens all the time when people come to Christian faith or even those who are just considering trying to come to the Christian faith. And that may be you. You may be just trying to consider, man, could the claims of Jesus, could he really be the source of life and life renewed? Is it really possible? But man, when you start thinking about that, especially if you come from a background that's not full of, of Christian people, you start thinking about the implications of a decision like that in your network of relationships, in your family, and you start to feel the, this pressure because you know how they're going to respond. And frequently, families respond with hostility when someone steps toward faith and says yes to Jesus. I, mean, I remember when we lived in Seattle, I was an intern with a church there, and I met a guy named Kazi. And Kazi was, he was an Egyptian young man, and he was a Muslim, and he had come to the United, United States to study, and so he was a student at the community college, and while he was in the States, he had actually come to faith in Jesus, because someone had taken the time to walk him through the Quran and help him see how Jesus is identified as the Son of God in the Quran. That's a whole other message, and you can go Google that, and it's amazing to see. But he had come to this place of saying, yes, he realized, man, my hope for my future, my hope for a life that is true, my hope for a life that is renewed and vibrant and full is in Jesus and Jesus alone. And he loved Jesus, but he was terrified to tell his family because he knew how they would respond. And he, like Muslims across the world who are considering stepping toward Jesus, know that their entire system of relationships is set up to sabotage a move toward faith in Jesus. Because they'll experience, he'll be ostracized by his family, he'll be blackballed, or at worst, his very life will be taken. See, it's set up to sabotage a step toward Jesus, to discourage that. And we have that in our own relationships in America. You know that you'll be chastised, you'll be ridiculed, you'll be made fun of, you'll be told that you're, you're just anti-intellectual, you've just checked out, you're weak, whatever it is, when you try to take a step toward Jesus. Well, man, we don't want to deal with all of that ridicule and that sabotage, and it's happening. And persecuted Christians all over the world are dealing with this intensity of the threats of their life. If, if that's a new concept to you, Google that as well. And watch your, just have your heart broken to see what people are enduring to say yes and stand with Jesus. And we feel it in other ways in, in our cultural context. I mean, thank God that we live in America that we can still 
openly profess a faith in Jesus Christ without open persecution, and yet there's persecution in other ways, some of it overt, some of it very subtle, just the pressure that we can feel to, to abandon our faith, to not stand with Jesus in the way that you conduct your business, you know, and, and just the, the temptation and the pressure to, you know, just fudge the numbers a little bit, oversell. Yeah, you know you're going to underdeliver, but, you know, it's okay just to give up a little bit of your integrity for the sake of the paycheck. And that pressure is there to, and is there seeking to undermine and sabotage your faith to say, you know what, with a pure heart, I'm going to seek God and God alone, no matter the consequences that I face, even in, in my work life. We feel it in other subtle ways. We feel it when we're, we feel the pressure to avoid getting in trouble. And so, you know, yeah, it's just a little white lie. Nobody really knows about it. Nobody, it's not hurting anybody. But again, we're giving up our integrity just a little bit. We do it when we try to avoid conflict, and so we refuse to speak the truth. We refuse to engage. We do it when we feel the pressure just to go with the flow. And the conversation suddenly took a turn. And now stories are being told about somebody who's not even there. It's, it's not just gossip. It's become laughter. It's become ridicule. It's become judgment. And you know, man, I shouldn't be a part of this conversation, but... The pressure just to at least stay silent, if not even fully participate, or maybe the conversation tr- turned from the football game to the cheerleaders and it moved to the ob- objectification of women, and the question is, am I going to be party to this conversation? Am I going to be silent, or am I going to step up? Am I going to stand with a pure heart, fully devoted to God and God alone, standing on his principles and purposes for my life? Not because it's like the rules I had better follow or else I get in big trouble, but because this is the person that you've been made to be, to represent Jesus in the world, to identify his heart in the, in the midst of the darkness, to shine as a light, to be a countercultural option in a world where the world is just perishing, seeking renewal constantly. That's why we're feeding our addictions. It's why we're pursuing all of these these idols in our lives. It's why we're out of control because we're seeking to, to fill that dark hole. And we're called as the followers of Jesus to stand in that mess as another option. To demonstrate that with purity of heart and devotion to God. You know, and we might wonder, why is renewal not happening in my life? Why is there this bottleneck? Why do I feel stuck where I am? And maybe it's because you're being invited to take a bold step. Maybe because things aren't actually changing in your life. And Jesus is inviting you to step out. And maybe it's to begin by praying for those who don't know Jesus, for an open door and an opportunity. And when that door opens, to then step through it and to share your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ, to share what Jesus has done for you to proclaim his name as the light in the midst of their darkness, as the source of your renewal. And you know what? It may, in fact, be their renewal that they receive, and it may jumpstart the renewal that God wants for you as you start to be bold in your faith, passionate in your purity and your devotion for God. But man, the sabotage is real. The pressure not to mention the name of Jesus is real. And see, this might be a huge change for you, Renewal, we said, requires change by definition, and so it might be hard. And perhaps the hardest part about the change is the sabotage. Edwin Friedman, was a, he was a, an author, a rabbi, a, a counselor at least, and a politician. I mean, quite a, a, an amazing, eccentric guy, and he's written a lot of things that I've really appreciated written a lot of things about leadership from a family systems theory standpoint, meaning how do you lead in recognition that we all live in this web of relationships? 
And he was writing about renewal in a book called A Failure of Nerve, writing about how do we pursue this different future. And he says, it's only after having first brought about a change and then subsequently endured the resultant sabotage that the leader can feel truly successful. In other words, what he's saying is that we, we start to move in the midst of, of trying to pursue renewal, and we implement some sort of change in our life. But the problem is sabotage is built into the system. And so we haven't actually effectively brought about change in our lives until we make the change and we endure the sabotage. And so one of the questions for us is, is do you actually see the sabotage? And it's not always malicious. It's not like the people in your life are really trying necessarily to hurt you. They're afraid of what's changing and what they might lose, remember? And so they, they may be sabotaging. Do you see the sabotage? And, and if we don't see the sabotage, it could be because nothing's changing in our lives. Maybe it's because we're not actually being renewed. Maybe it's because we're not being bold. Maybe it's because we're not stepping out. We're not offering that alternative. Maybe we're not seeing that. And so maybe it's a matter of we need to purify our heart, our devotion, taking steps toward the renewal that God wants for us, and then maybe the sabotage will come. And not that I wish the sabotage on you, but what Friedman's talking about is that the sabotage comes as a result of our successful change, our successful steps toward renewal. And so if you're being sabotaged, it's because you're being renewed. If you're not, the question is, are you being renewed? Maybe you do see it. Maybe it's just easy in your life to identify where the sabotage is. And maybe it's coming from within. Maybe it's those same old patterns that you can't seem to undo and, and get out of that aren't working. Maybe it's just that heart that continues to be divided between your devotion and your loyalty to God and all of these other things that seem to make a claim on you. Maybe it's, it's coming from outside. Maybe it's from people, people who are close to you and care about you, but yet they're still the source of sabotage. But in all of this, I just want to acknowledge very clearly that we are naive to think that we can be immune from sabotage because we're naive to think that we don't have an enemy in our lives, an enemy that does not want to allow your life and our lives to be renewed. Our reading from 1 Peter chapter 5 earlier makes it so clear. Peter's writing to the, to the church that is suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire under total persecution. As they're seeking renewal, is there some sabotage? Yeah, it's called lions. Being thrown to the lions, being crucified. Yeah, those are some things that are built in to try to sabotage the Christian faith. And he's telling them so clearly, hey, but your real enemy is the devil that is like a, a roaring lion that's prowling around looking for someone to devour. I mean, our, our modern kind of world, our modern sensibilities frequently just try to dismiss stuff like this. I mean, it just doesn't fit. It seems like, you know, some old fairy tale. We, and we come up with all the reasons why that's not true and it couldn't possibly be. That's the sabotage at work. Because as soon as we pretend it's not happening, that it's not real, then we're sitting ducks. You have an enemy that does not want your life to be renewed in the purposes of God as you say yes and stand with Jesus with a pure, undivided loyalty to God. And Peter was speaking this to a church that knew the, the pressures of sabotage. But he says to them, after you have resisted the devil, after you have resisted this enemy, after you have endured the suffering for some period of time, after you have pushed through the hopelessness, the hurt, the sorrow, after you have pushed through it, you will be restored. 
And so in the middle of all this, he's saying, bring all of your fear, bring all of your anxiety, and cast it before the Lord. I know you're afraid of making that change. I know you're afraid of standing up and saying yes for Jesus. Just bring your fears. You will be restored. But at the beginning of what he said in that whole passage, we said, so humble yourselves before the Almighty God. And humility, I think, is what is so necessary for the church. It's so necessary when we want to move toward renewal and to be a source of renewal in the world. A humility that recognizes when we look at ourselves honestly and we think about our purity, our devotion, our loyalty to God, we recognize that even as Christian shared with us leading into our prayer of confession, I got a long way to go. Yeah, I'm giving in to the pressure of the sabotage. I'm not standing and saying yes to what God wants to do in my life. And see, this keeps us humble in the midst of a culture that is getting more and more arrogant, particularly when it comes along what we perceive as moral lines. I mean, depending on where you find yourself or think of yourself in kind of the political world that we live in, everybody thinks that they have the moral high ground and that everybody else who's not following their moral compass is lesser than. And so we look at their impurity, thinking that we're pure. And what this is inviting us to is going, no, 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 we are all impure. We are all humbled before the Almighty God. We are all unworthy of asking God for renewal. And even as we are unworthy, there is hope that we will be restored. And the hope comes because where we failed, Jesus triumphs. That where we give in to the sabotage, Jesus resists. We find it especially so clearly in Matthew chapter 16, where we get the story of Jesus and he's with the disciples and he's telling them, hey, I'm going to have to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be turned over to the authorities. I'm going to be put on trial and ultimately going to be crucified on a cross. And Peter's like, mm-mm, Jesus, not on my watch. That's my paraphrase. He says, never, Lord. Not going to happen. Talk about sabotage. And this is, this is Peter. This is one of Jesus' best friends. He's one of the three that is the inner circle with Jesus. They share the most intimate moments of life together. And Peter, out of Peter's mouth, is coming the very temptation to sabotage everything. And we know it's sabotage because Jesus responds to this and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of man. Peter, the enemy is speaking through you, trying to sabotage everything God wants to do. He's trying to sabotage the renewal that he wants to bring into these people's lives. He's trying to sabotage the forgiveness and the healing and the washing clean of the impure that need to be reconciled to God. He's trying to sabotage the entire mission. Get behind me. See, Jesus resisted the sabotage and endured the cross, taking on its pain, taking on the impurity of our sin crucifying it within his body so that he could restore and renew us. That in his resurrection, we could be made new. We could be made pure again, that our lives could be renewed. So you're being invited. We're all being invited to step toward renewal, toward a renewal that is founded in the pure, unadulterated, sold-out devotion to Jesus and Jesus alone. And it's also being invited to be honest of where we have given in 
where the enemies and the sabotage has overwhelmed us. We have failed and yet to be restored because Jesus has resisted the sabotage so that you and I can be renewed. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much. We thank you for your word that, that speaks into our lives today in, in ways that surprise us, in ways that convict us, in ways that inspire us and move us. And so, Lord God, we thank you. We, we also recognize, Lord, when we are honest and we pause and look at our lives, we see the impurity. We see the, the, the split devotion. We see and feel the conviction of not standing with you and saying yes, not moving toward lives that are renewed. And so we thank you, God, that you didn't abandon us in our impurity. We confess it to you. We ask for your forgiveness, and we thank you that Jesus resisted the sabotage so that we could be forgiven and that we could be made new. And so we put our hope in Christ alone, and may you lead us May you lead us to stand with you and to be more and more that light in the midst of the darkness and offering an alternative that says our renewal is in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. And as we move towards that renewal that you have for us, Lord, and we fight against the ultimate saboteur who tries to draw us into his darkness.